You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on February 2nd, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about business, innovation, and managing life. And please feel free to uh, uh, ask whatever questions you'd like, um, and I'll see what I can do to answer them. We have a few questions saved up from a previous time. Um, I have one from Neuro asking, do I like to play video games? If so, what games do I play? I am a no games person, I'm afraid. I, there are various things in, um, there are things I like to do, which mostly have to do with creating stuff. And uh, I, I see so many people who like playing all kinds of games, whether they are uh, uh, video games, board games, sports, all these kinds of things. And uh, I suppose that's something which I have chosen to, uh, I, I think of it as optimize out of my life, but I, I can see that other people get lots of uh, fulfillment out of these things. I have to say that I've, I, I'm sure that a modern video game, um, I would be quite unable to play because I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I lost, I think played a quotes computer game when I once wrote one in 1973 on a computer that was um, deeply primitive compared to what exists today. It was a game where you would press buttons on the computer, depending on whether given two letters that showed up, if they were in order versus out of order, you would press a left button or a right button. And uh, my main observation was that when you made it go fast, people would get it wrong more than 50% of the time, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but I'm afraid that that's about the last uh, uh, computer game-like thing that I've really, really played. And as I say, I'm sure I will be quite unable to play a modern. I, I think I've tried playing sometime after many, many, many years ago. I, I learned to fly small planes, although I haven't done it for a really, really long time. But uh, when Flight Simulator was first a thing, I was curious whether knowing something about flying actual planes helped one fly the simulator and the answer seemed to be yes. So I was impressed by the simulator as a result of that. But so no, I'm, I'm not a, um, uh, a games person, I'm afraid. Um, let's see, uh, there's a question here about, um, there's a question here, what do, what do I plan to achieve by the end of 2022? Oh boy, you're asking about my future projects. You know, I kind of had, um, uh, uh, um, it's, it's a funny thing because I have projects that I've been thinking about doing for decades and I kind of wonder when is the right time to do this project? When has the world gotten to the point where the pieces that are needed to really be able to do this project, where the platform for doing this project, the scaffolding for doing this project exists and when is it not? And then when do I have a setup which allows me to do the project? And then sometimes when do I have the key ideas necessary to really make the project work? So a great example of a project that I had long thought about was our project, uh, fundamental physics project. I sort of first started thinking about that project. Well, I, I first wondered about the project in the 1970s, 
but I first sort of thought I actually had an idea about the project in the early 1990s, but then kind of got to the point where I'd had some in my big book, A New Kind of Science, that came out nearly 20 years ago now, in 2002, I had a chapter about fundamental physics, which had some of the key ideas uh, for finding a, a fundamental theory of physics in it. Um, but I hadn't solved a bunch of the problems that were needed to be solved in that chapter. Then when the book came out, one of the things that happened was that among, out of many sort of markets who liked the book very much, but one that didn't was my friends in the theoretical physics community who were like, no, no, it can't possibly be this way. And so that kind of led me as a result of kind of market forces to decide, well, you know, this fundamental theory of physics project, it's like, let me put that on hold. Nobody seems to want that project. The target market of, of professional physicists doesn't want that project, at least not at that time. And so then uh, almost 20 years went by and, but that was a project I always said, I, I would love to do this project sometime, but I need another idea. I need a mechanism, a way to do the project so that there's a target market that actually wants it. And then finally, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, I had a, a little idea and then had some, uh, some people who, who wanted to work with me on the project and the project got started and it went spectacularly. And the thing was really interesting is that I had thought there would be sort of resistance from the target market. There hasn't been. It's actually been a very positive experience with a lot of enthusiasm for people in the mathematical physics kind of community. Very different from 20 years ago. It's really remarkable how, how much of a change there has been in that case in a span of 20 years. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, it may have something to do with the presentation of the project, something to do with the content of the project, but I think it has more to do with things that have happened in the world. I think it has to do with, uh, well, uh, actually, I think probably the, the number one thing, probably, really, is, in a sense, the self-esteem of the field in, the, in this particular case. So, you know, when you have a field of science, academia, whatever, where people say, we have it under control, we don't need any outside input, we're doing it, it's all good, then if there's outside input, so to speak, it's like, no, 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 we don't want any of that. Whereas if there's a field that where people are saying, look, we've got problems, you know, things are not working, then when there's outside input, which particularly might seem aligned with some of the things that people have already been thinking about, it's like, great, this allows us to move forward. So it's a, it's a place where sort of the market timing is, uh, is, is, is then correct in a way that has nothing to do with one's intrinsic ability to do the project, it simply has to do with things evolving in the outside world. So having said that, there are, uh, I, you know, I tend to have this, this strategy where I have these projects that I think about for decades, and I gradually accumulate, you know, I gradually get to know people who've been working in related things and get to understand what they've done. I gradually collect, you know, books and, and documents and things related to it. I gradually, and in some cases, I will say I, I gradually get tools built. Sometimes, you know, like for example, the, our ability to do the physics project was a consequence of the fact that we have good graph theory capabilities in Wolfram language, which were built more than a decade ago, and which I certainly was like, yeah, this is a good thing to do. Let's, let's build graph theory things, thinking that one day I might want to use those things for a physics project. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a get the tools built years ahead in many cases, 
so that the project becomes possible when one finally has everything aligned to be able to do it. And so, you know, these projects tend to be a combination of the state of the world, the particular people who I might be working with, the ideas that launch the project, um, those kinds of things. So having said that, the big surprise to me right now is that I have a kind of a boatload of new projects which have been delivered by kind of the ideas that have come out of our physics project. I've kind of talked about um, what I view as being kind of the fourth paradigm for, for making models in science. The kind of the first one was sort of the, the structural paradigm. You know, we know what things are made of. That's from antiquity. Next one was kind of the mathematical paradigm. We know how to write down formulas from things. That's the 1600s. The kind of third paradigm, which I was very involved in myself, uh, starting in the 1980s, was we can write a program for that. And this kind of fourth paradigm is what I'm calling kind of the multi-computational paradigm. And it has to do with this idea that you can have a process that has sort of many threads of time, many possible things that can happen. And you are observing those things as a kind of a, you're having to sample those things as an observer. And that seems to be the critical kind of idea and formalism that is delivering us, for example, the fundamental theory of physics. And it looks as if that set of concepts has the potential to kind of uh, solve a bunch of problems, a bunch of sort of blocking issues in a whole bunch of different fields. It's, it's exciting. It's very powerful to be able to, for example, take ideas from physics. Big thing I've been doing the last few months is applying ideas from physics to meta-mathematics, to kind of foundations of mathematics. Hopefully that will get finished in the next few weeks. Um, but it's really, it's really neat to be able to take these ideas that come from things like theory of gravity and apply them to the uh, abstract ideas about mathematical logic and foundations of mathematics. And that's, there's tremendous power in being able to take sort of things, achievements from one field and import them into another field and so on. And one of the things that I'm hoping to do this year is kind of to really develop that uh, multi-computational paradigm and apply it in a bunch of places. And it looks super promising and for lots of kinds of things. I think the next few, well, let's see. What are the next few things? Well, there's this thing I'm calling observer theory, which is kind of the analog of Turing machines for observers, um, which is kind of a necessary piece of this multi-computation paradigm. That feeds into a kind of this idea of multi-computation as a framework for doing computation, for doing sort of a, a new way of understanding distributed computing, which I think will have very direct uh, kind of implications for whether it's GPU style computing, whether it's um, uh, simply ways to organize programs for sort of generalizations of logic programming, probabilistic programming, et cetera. Um, I think it's going to, it's, it's not an easy project, but I think it's going to have a sort of rather immediate way of clarifying a lot of kind of ways to think about computation. It's sort of analogous to a thing that I didn't realize how important it was back when I did it, back around 1979, 1980, of inventing this kind of symbolic programming with pattern matching uh, method methodology for thinking about how computation works. That's been the foundation for Wolfram Language now for 40 years. This idea that, uh, well, Wolfram Language is now 35 years old, but it, it also existed in the precursor that I called SMP uh, that started in 1979. Um, it's kind of the idea that you can sort of think about computation as a process of taking symbolic expressions that can represent anything, 
can represent, you know, tables of numbers, they can represent cities, they can represent images, they can represent anything. And that the main operation of computation is transforming those symbolic expressions using kind of patterns. And that's, that's how we built Wolfram language, and it's incredibly powerful. This multi-computation idea is another incredibly powerful idea that can be built on top of the kind of Wolfram language idea, um, which I think is going to clarify how a lot of kinds of computations can be done. And I think that that will let one get a kind of uh, a, a new, new formalism and new insight in a lot of different fields. So metamathematics is one I've just been working on. The, the, that has, uh, I'm not sure how practical the applications of that are. I mean, it, it really has to do with understanding the foundations of mathematics and there's kind of been a, a, a story that's been going about 130 years now of kind of the way that people think about the foundations of mathematics, which I've kind of realized uh, how far off track it actually probably is. And there's a very different way of thinking about it. And that's what this kind of approach to metamathematics is. It's kind of, it's kind of nice because you get to, I always enjoy these things where you know, things have been thought about in a particular way for a century and one has a different way of thinking about them. And then one goes back and one looks at what people were saying a century ago when they were inventing the current way of thinking about things. And you realize actually they, they almost got it. And it was, you know, it just because of the, the way that kind of the herd went in a different direction, um, it didn't quite, didn't, it went in a different way. So anyway, that, that's one thing that's a, a rather near-term thing. Uh, kind of this observer theory is sort of a, a piece of the, the multi-computation story. I'm hoping to actually solve the problem of making multi-computation a kind of consumerizable thing in language design. Um, I think it's going to, there's a lot of rather obscure formalisms for parallel computation, which I'm hoping we'll be able to greatly clarify by doing this. Then one starts thinking about the applications of this. Um, well, actually another piece of project that I'm planning to do is to sort of relate what we've done to the traditions and his history of philosophy. This is again, a rather abstract kind of project, but it's like people say, how does this relate to what Leibniz said? How does it relate to what Kant said? How does it relate to what uh, you know, Hegel said about this or that? And uh, I'm decided I better, I better actually be able to answer those questions. So I'm going to try to do that um, and sort of describe how the things that we've now figured out about physics and kind of foundations of physics and mathematics and so on, how these relate to kind of philosophical ideas, historical philosophical ideas. I think this is going to be informative for people who are trying to understand what we're now doing and who already know about this past philosophy. It's also, I suspect, I'm going to learn things from it about ways to think about what we're doing uh, with greater clarity by through the lens of sort of historical philosophy. So then in terms of applications, the, um, the thing that, uh, uh, well, there's a series of them. Uh, another one is to, uh, well, uh, molecular biology, molecular computing, um, and uh, sort of not too far away from that immunology. Um, and I kind of have this idea based on this kind of multi-computation paradigm for a way to think about sort of how molecular biology works, the, the idea essentially is sort of we learnt from sort of the existence of DNA and so on and, and how it works, that molecules can pack huge amounts of digital information in them. The, the kind of the new idea is that, that molecular processes can 
packet can can store information by virtue of the dynamics of those molecular processes. So instead of just saying there's this total concentration of this chemical, it's like there's this loop of molecules, this causal loop of molecules that are, you know, A is affecting B is affecting C is affecting A and so on. And that that not as a bulk matter of, of you know, uh, uh, trillions of molecules going through those loops, but rather individual ones, the sort of causal structure of molecular interactions, being able to actually think about that as a sort of source of computation. And that I think has the potential to be important in, because it may be the way that molecular biology is doing a lot of what it does. Uh, I think it is potentially important to understanding immunology, which I think is a particularly good use case of that um, as a way to try and understand sort of a foundational theory for that. Um, and I think that as a practical matter, there's the potential to make molecular scale computing in a very different way than perhaps people have imagined, something which where you can do kind of liquid phase computing and so on. Um, and uh, uh, again, in terms of sort of the technology being at the right point, thanks to a big Wolfram language technology stack, there's a company called Emerald Cloud Lab that's built a kind of uh, chemistry lab in the cloud that allows folks like me to just write Wolfram language code and have actual physical experiments done. And so, so I'm hoping to use that to do um, the, uh, to, to actually try and do some molecular computing. You know, can you compute the primes with molecules type thing? That's sort of one of my challenge questions. And then this whole multi-computation paradigm just has all these other applications. I mean, another one that uh, I'm curious to look at is economics and trying to understand sort of a global theory of this kind of network of transactions and the way that there is emergence of things like prices in economics. Uh, I think it's sort of analogous potentially to the way that a notion of space emerges from all of those detailed interactions that we think happen at sort of the smallest scale in, in, uh, in the physical universe. And as a sort of practical aspect of that, uh, we'd worked on actually last year, year before, um, a bit sort of the a, 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 an approach to blockchain, an approach to kind of distributed blockchain that is uh, uh, based on something that... Um, is sort of inspired by the physics project. Um, so that's an, another thing. And, and that, in a sense, working on that distributed blockchain project made me realize I don't understand economics. And so that kind of got me into thinking about that. And I think those two things will come together. If we can get a, an understanding of a, a sort of a different kind of theory of economics, it will come along with an actual way to implement distributed blockchain. So that's, a, that's another project. Um, another project that is one that I've long been planning is a thing that I call the symbolic discourse language, although it might yet change its name. It's kind of the idea of being able to express in computational language, not just sort of a standard kind of uh, sort of uh, facts about the world, but also uh, the kinds of things that people express in, in everyday discourse and so on. Like, you know, I want a piece of chocolate. The, you know, we can already express in Wolfram language very well a piece of chocolate, what kind of chocolate, how much, how big is the piece of chocolate, all those kinds of things. But the I want part is something we cannot express yet. And so the idea is, it's an idea which people had back in the 1600s. They called it philosophical language back then. Um, and it's kind of an idea that's been kind of dropped because it hasn't really had use cases and it hasn't had an implementation methodology. But I think we now have an implementation methodology and use cases. The early use case for symbolic discourse language will probably be computational contracts. And 
sort of that that leads one into the kind of the the um, the question of you know if you were going to write you know the computational constitution for the you know what how should the AIs conduct themselves so to speak or whatever it is what would that say that's I would say a sideshow which I don't think I'm going to I'm, I'm kind of sort of sort of a, in a hobby kind of way, thinking a little bit about that and realizing how extremely hard it is and why political philosophy and so on is really hard. But in any case, the, the, the more practical part uh, in nearer term is to invent the symbolic discourse language and have it be usable as a way to express what have or what are traditionally contracts written in legalese. And I'm, I'm hoping, I've been planning to do this symbolic discourse language project for a while, and I'm hoping maybe this year I will be able to get that started. Um, then, oh my gosh, this is too long a list. You know, I'm telling you, this is terrible. Uh, another big piece is experimental implications of our physics project, which is kind of really a story of, of sort of tacking on traditional physics onto our project to figure out, you know, exactly what should a telescope really see in this or that case. That's a project which, like many of these others, I will hope to do with other people. In fact, one of the things that is another sort of meta project is finally getting started a kind of Wolfram Institute um, where we can bring in people to do kind of basic research. And the challenge there is, is inventing how should this institute work? Um, you know, right now, this is something where, you know, I'm funding a small amount of basic research because I think it's personally interesting. But as one scales it up, it no longer makes sense. The, the, the methodology of getting the research done, I think we have well under control from what we've understood and what I've done for decades with our company, but kind of the getting the right motivation structure, getting the right flow of money and so on for basic research, this is a thing which we still have to figure out, whether this is philanthropy, whether this is crypto philanthropy or crypto something else, or, or tokenization of some kind, not yet figured out. That's something that um, is also on the list. Um, the uh, This is really an outrageously long list. It's... it's um, this is, uh, this is how I keep busy, so to speak. Um, another piece, uh, well, uh, several other things that are coming. Um, the, uh, uh, another thing I'm hoping to do is uh, people are always talking about computational X. Well, at least I'm always talking about computational X for all X. You know, every field, there's a computational version of that field. How do people get to learn how to do those kinds of things? Do they go and study computer science to do that? Do they learn how to write for loops in Java or something? Well, that's really not the right way to get there. The technology stack that we've been building for the last 40 years is the technology stack one needs to get to computational X without going through the kind of the, the, uh, the trenches of kind of low level computer science. Um, but the thing is people don't really understand yet, some people do, but it's not as widely understood as it should be, kind of how you can get to computational X without going through the mud of kind of the, the trenches of low-level computer science and, and low-level programming languages and so on. And so I was planning to, uh, as people sort of say, I don't understand how that can work. I was planning to at least write one book called probably Introduction to the Computational Method, which will be about that question of how do you get to, uh, you know, how do you learn what you need to learn to do computational acts without being dragged through the mud, so to speak. And so that's, a, that's another project which I hope will go fairly quickly, um, but uh, it's another thing I hope to do. Um, the, uh, uh, let's see, other things for this year. Well, it's the 20th anniversary of my book, A New Kind of Science. 
And so I'll be doing a bunch of things around that. Kind of, uh, I'm kind of interested to do sort of a little bit of the follow-up of the, the what happened. And there are huge numbers of papers, for example, academic papers that people have produced on the basis of the book. And I, I was looking at some of the lists of them, and it's, it's kind of rather head-spinning because they're about so many different topics. There are many papers where you look at them and it's like, this is interesting, but you, know, you can't read all of those. And I'm trying to, trying to understand what to do with that. And uh, one thing I, I do plan to do is to start uh, kind of this, this field of studying simple programs and what they do, which I'm now calling ruleology. Um, I'm planning to kind of start sort of a, a, a community, a ruleological society to help support people who are, who are engaged in that kind of research. Uh, another big thing, I suppose, for me is that I, you know, my day job is building Wolfram Language and uh, leading our company. And uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm uh, excited about, a lot of things we're doing in, in Wolfram Language and the development of that, but sort of a meta thing there is that it is a little bit sort of uh, scary that in some ways I can tell that the technology we have is 50 years ahead of kind of where the world is. There are plenty of people who understand it, but the generic, you know, it, it's, it's like the amounts of time as I get older and so on, I kind of realize sort of how fast do things or, or not fast do things move in the world. And, you know, I was struck recently, it was the uh, one third century anniversary of, of Wolfram Language and Mathematica. And I was realizing that means that our system is half the age of all commercial computing. That is, the earliest kind of commercial computers were 66 years ago. Our system has been out for 33 years. And that's, you know, it's a long time. And yet there are many things that I, for example, introduced more than 40 years ago now that people, people use them, certainly plenty of people use them, but they're definitely not widely understood. Even though to people who use them, they're, they're very useful and they're just like, oh, of course it works that way. How could it, people don't understand, but there's a, there's a thing there that's kind of a big intellectual thing that, that, those, that sort of ease of use uh, relies on. And, you know, I kind of get to see these ideas that one has and things one implements and realize that one's, look, this is, these are artifacts from the future, basically. Now, it's, it's, it, for me, it's always really fun to see people who, uh, and there are many, who managed to sort of take the artifact from the future, wheel it into today and do things which other people say, oh, my gosh, that's magic. I didn't think one would be able to do that for years, if ever. So, you know, one of the challenges is how do you communicate about artifacts from the future? How do you let, how do you bring the, pull the world into a state where it can really make the best use of artifacts in the future? This is really a challenge of, of sort of describing what one has, providing the right on-ramps for it, um, and just getting the word out. And that's an important priority as far as I'm concerned for our company and for me over the next year or so. So those are those are a few things. Um, it's uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to think what am I what am I forgetting in my list of projects? Well, uh, this whole multi computation paradigm has uh, sort of a, a whole lot of of different directions. I mean, there's some potential for biological evolution modeling. There's potential for machine learning modeling. There's some neuroscience potential. There's potential for modeling and linguistics. Um, 
I'm not sure which of these I'm going to try and tackle. Um, I'm kind of hoping if we can get our Wolfram Institute up and running that we will be able to hire some people to kind of just have a small group working in each of these areas um, so that we can kind of develop sort of the, the expertise and the, the ambient infrastructure, so to speak, and the tooling to be able to really tackle these different areas. I mean, in, in, in many of these areas, thanks to tool building over the last few decades, I really got the tools we need. Uh, now we just need the ideas and the people and sort of pulling everything together. Um, but that's, uh, I would say that at a meta level, I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I, I am planning to write more. I, I find writing, um, for me, I, I, sometimes I, I, I do tend to write rather long pieces. It, it's often easier to write a longer piece than a shorter piece. And I take the point of view that, that uh, it's more important for me to write the thing, get it out, than it is to necessarily have absolute perfection in it. Um, and although I'm usually pretty happy when I actually reread these things, I'm actually surprising, pleasantly surprised, I would say, um, uh, by the fact that they, they, they're sort of better than I remember them to be, so to speak. So in any case, those are, those are a few projects. I mean, I have some other kind of hobby projects, um, particularly educational related hobby projects, um, which I, I, I also hope to pursue. But um, yeah, those, that's, that's plenty to keep one busy. I mean, I, you know, this is why I care about sort of being productive and efficient is because I've really got a big stack of projects I want to do. And you know, how does one actually get all these things done? Um, I, I didn't even mention a lot of more technical, sort of sm smaller researchy type projects, which um, I'm hoping to do, where, where each one of these projects is so like one of them is applying multi-computation to games and game theory. Somebody had asked about video games. I don't know anything about video games. I don't really know. I don't play games, but I'm sort of, the, the games are a useful metaphor for understanding some of these kind of uh, formalistic principles. And, and that's a place where I'm hoping to, to use them. It's a sort of a small project there. Let's see. Uh, there's a, several interesting questions here, all right. Um, Ed asks, is there a way to gauge how good your business or product ideas are when you have limited external feedback available? You know, I have to say, I've mostly built products that I want myself. And that has been a very good guide for me. I mean, I realized that even if everything we've done, Wolfram Language, and all the millions of people who use it, even if you took all of that away, I'm really excited about the fact that I, as a user base of one, get to use what we've built. And that, to me, is an important sign of whether you're building the right product. At least do you have a user base of one who's very enthusiastic. If it's like, I'm going to build this, other people are going to use it, but I'm not going to use it myself. That's always, it's more difficult. It's, it might be possible. It's not something I've done. So I, I would say that often external feedback can actually be quite confusing. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, when when we were looking at building Wolfram Alpha, for example, nothing like it existed. We kind of talked to people about it and most people just said, oh, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know, it doesn't seem useful to me type thing. And, and then when it existed, people were like, oh, oh, okay. So, you know, it's, it's often, particularly when you have something that's quite innovative, it's often really hard to tell from the outside world whether whether it's going to be well accepted or not. And sometimes people, uh, so I, I would say that, that um, uh, you know, 
go with what you yourself think about the product and whether you would use it and whether you're excited about using it, those are really good signals as far as I can tell for, for whether it's a good thing to do. Um, that, that would be my, my take on that. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a question from Icy here. Um, with access to the internet, having access to knowledge is not a problem, but humans absorb knowledge very slowly. How can we optimize the use of the knowledge we have access to? You know, I, I mean, I, for myself, I largely absorb knowledge when I need the knowledge, so to speak. I mean, I, I, I guess I absorb some knowledge just because it's kind of fun knowledge to absorb. But when it's really sort of serious industrial scale knowledge acquisition, I'm doing that when I have a reason to do it. Um, I don't find it, I find it difficult to absorb and I can't fit it into a framework of what am I trying to do with it? It's just like, this is an abstract piece of knowledge. Well, if it's kind of fun knowledge, well, I'll file it away. I have a decent memory. So, you know, I get to, to be able to do that. But it, um, uh, for me, the really, you know, the hard work knowledge acquisition is done in pursuit of some project or another. So, and that's one thing to say. Another thing to say is that what I've noticed is you know, the more you know, the easier it is to learn new stuff. And that's true not only in terms of the sort of methodology of learning, it's also true just in terms of knowing a bunch of facts allows you to anchor things. When you learn about some new area, there will be facts and analogies you can make and analogies to factual things that you get to make if you just know a bunch about a bunch of different areas. So it definitely helps the sort of, the more you know, the easier it is to learn new stuff. And by no, I mean, uh, well, you need to know the facts. In some cases, you need to be in a position where you can really do the field, where you can really actually, where you know that you have the skills to be able to do it. Sometimes that's not as necessary. Sometimes it's more important to know the facts just so that you can kind of see how things fit together. I think that in terms of, of uh, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm surprised there'll be a field that I look at where I quickly drill through all the literature that there is there. I quickly realize, okay, I, I understand what's known. I hit kind of the, the uh, uh, sort of, I hit the, 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 you know, the, the, I poked through to the outside of the, of the building, so to speak, very quickly. There's nothing more there. And, and so we're on our own now. And then there are fields where it's like, oh my gosh, there's 100,000 papers written about this. You know, this is a drowning unbelievably complicated area where just a huge amount has been said. And, you know, then the question is for the particular project I'm doing, how much of that should I learn? And that's a tricky thing because sometimes if you learn too much, you don't do your project. You know, I, I, for example, in the things I'm doing right now about metamathematics, there's 130 years of work that's been done in particular areas that I don't know how many papers, mm, I, I would say probably at least a hundred thousand, probably more. And, um, uh, you know, they're very technical. They're very hard to understand. Uh, I think I know the, the broad outlines of the whole history of what's happened, but I certainly wouldn't know the, the many, it's, it's a field that has had many, many tentacles. It's a very notationally complicated field, conceptually complicated. The formalism is complicated. The formalism is messy in many cases. And there are just many, many, many branches. There are many, it's not a well, some fields are very, a very kind of, uh, there's sort of a, a, a single thread 
and it all gets to be sort of handled in that single thread. This is not one of those. It's a field, interestingly, where back in the 1950s and 1960s, people wrote a lot of rather similar, but also rather good kind of textbooks of the state of the field. Um, and, you know, that corpus of knowledge, I know that corpus of knowledge well, but then all the sort of tentacles that developed from there and before there, in fact, um, it's just, it's not clear which tentacles to follow. And my decision in that particular case, I'm not really going to follow any of them. You know, I know the sort of, the, the, the core I know pretty well, the tentacles, it's just like, I can't, I can't follow all of these things. And the, the ideas that I have in that field, I think, have basically nothing to do with most of the existing tentacles. I, I might, you know, somebody may say, look, there's this tentacle over here that has something to do with it, but I, I don't think there's much. Um, but it's a case where I could spend a huge amount of time trying to, you know, trying to trace all these tentacles, and I just don't think it's worth it. Um, on the other hand, I, I am a big believer in sort of doing one's home. One thing I like to do, I find very important in, in, in working in different areas is know the history. And, and that's true not only for, for academic kinds of things and intellectual kinds of things, I think it's also true for technology. It's like, know what happened before. Don't necessarily say, oh, somebody tried to make a product like this before and it failed, so I'm not going to do it because it's always going to fail. That's not necessarily the right conclusion. But knowing the history of what happened is, you know, it gives you information about what you can do, about ways to think about things and so on. And I'm a big believer in, in sort of getting that history done. And history is not an easy thing because there are usually many twists and turns of history. There are often, you know, versions of history that have been written in one way or another way that you have to kind of dig through. Um, but, but usually there is a narrative. There is a, there is a story and there's a certain rhythm, I would say, that you tend to find in the history of particularly intellectual and technological innovation that is like, well, now I know I more or less have the history right because this feels like a rhythm of history that I've seen before. And that means that, for example, you, whenever the history says, and then there was a big jump and people went from nothing to understanding everything, that is usually not a correct piece of history. Or, or, they, or they went from this product came out of nowhere and it was unbelievably successful. Again, probably not a correct piece of history. But you know, one gets sort of some intuition about the rhythm for those things, and I think that's that's very helpful in in uh, sort of contextualizing things. And um, but but whether one needs all of the technical detail in all these cases, I I'm not sure one does. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a little bit on on um, um, you know, in terms of optimizing, you ask about optimizing the use of knowledge that we do have access to. Uh, you know, I would say tools and methods are always, uh, look, facts are really important. Tools and methods are amplifiers for facts. And, you know, for me, kind of our whole Wolfram language stack and the whole idea of computational language, the whole way of given, given some general thing I'm thinking about, can I turn it into computational language code? That's a, a, a very, a very, uh, a, a huge and very effective lever. Uh, once you can do that, you can take sort of a, a certain kind of understanding and leverage it hugely to the point where you can really make it a kind of production grade thing. And that's, that's a way to take knowledge. Now, the one sort of feature of computational language is rather unforgiving. If you don't understand what you're talking about, your computer is just going to tell you, I don't understand what you're talking about. 
So you really kind of have to understand what you're talking about. But once you do, and you can get your computer's help, huge leverage from that. And so that's a way for me, again, in terms of understanding things, you know, I'll quite often say to people, they'll send me something and I'll say, you know, show me a piece of Wolfram language code that does that. And sometimes they do. And it's like, okay, now I get it. I can take what you've, you know, what you've sent me. I can now use it. I can understand it. I can build from it. I can, you know, build some tower on it. And, and that's very powerful. Let's see. Okay, IP is asking, how do you manage to keep up with the project after the most challenging parts are complete? Um, and the person says, um, sounds silly, but to me, I lose interest after I crack the core issues. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an issue. I mean, for me, if I was doing these projects truly on my own, I think I would have a hard time with that and I would try and invent projects which can be quotes finished. Like, you know, you write a book, it can be finished. You write a piece of living, breathing software, it's typically never finished. You do, you know, you do some grand event, the event happens, it's finished. So, you know, in a situation where you are, feel that, look, I'm mostly interested in, the, in climbing the hill, and by the time I get to the top, I've kind of lost interest in it, and, um, uh, and then it doesn't work so well. You know, when I think about things like that for myself, when they're more sort of in the nature of personal projects, I try and think, think about the future and I think about how do I make this project be something that's been just sort of finished and tied in a bow. Um, the, um, tied with a bow, I suppose. The, the, um, uh, it's um, uh, usually for larger projects that are going to have a long sort of, uh, long life to them, they're done with other people. And part of what you do in doing the project is you build the structure that allows the project to keep on, uh, keep the process to keep on running, to keep on maintaining, enhancing, developing that, um, that thing. And so for me, you know, like in Wolfram Language, I started building it 35 years ago and it's still very much alive and well and I do things on it every day. Now, if that was me alone, that would be probably more tenacity than I can muster to keep going for 35 years, just sort of pushing, pushing, pushing every day on something. When I worked on my big book, A New Kind of Science, that was about 10 years of personally pushing to make that project happen. And that was, it was a, a big exercise in tenacity. And I think it's, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly the largest sort of single project with personal tenacity that I've done and probably the largest that I'll ever do. Um, most of the big projects I've done are done with many other people and are done where part of the project is building the management structure and the kind of organizational structure to keep the project going. And then what tends to happen with me is you build that structure and then those people, talented people, they come back to you and they say, hey, we've done this. And then that you say, oh, that's interesting. And then you kind of get, you know, you kind of give them comments and so on. And some part of what you're doing at that point is just commenting on what other people are doing. But then often for me, it's like, okay, once the next piece of the platform has been built, then I get excited again and I realize, oh gosh, we can do this thing now. And you kind of get re-energized. But I think it's important to sort of build the organizational structure along with building the project if you want it to be a long project. I think that the idea, I mean, I, I myself happen to be a fairly... I would say habitual person 
um, and you know, I'll I'll sort of do certain things every day, and I'll do this live stream, you know, every two weeks, and you know, it's it's rather I have a rather definite rhythm, and I would say that some things that I do uh, where I'm kind of maintaining the structure of something, um, I I do manage to do them as a as a matter of sort of my habitual rhythm. And that's that's an important way to get them done. I mean, you know, one thing for me is I get an awful lot of email from from all kinds of all kinds of interesting things from all kinds of people and places and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a you know that's a big challenge to sort of keep on top of all that stuff. And and you know, I know right now I'm months behind, for example, on on various kinds of things. Meta mathematics has put uh, some of that processing, uh, my sort of habitual processing, quite behind. But that's an example of something where I have enough of a habit of doing it that it does get done and it doesn't get just dropped. Um, and I think that's that's another piece of, of um, sort of the story is, you know, the habits one develops. Aaron asks, um, if you were starting a tech company outside the US, where would you start it? It's an interesting question. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's been this strange thing that... You know, you see different degrees of success in different countries of, you know, tech industries coming and sometimes going as well. Um, you know, I can't say that I've kept complete track of things, but it is remarkable that the, how well the U.S. has traditionally done in being a place that can get new tech companies started. Why? Why does that happen? I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of the people doing it didn't come from the US. It's not like, you know, there's something magic about the US education system or something that's leading to this. I think perhaps at least at the lower levels, maybe something to the contrary, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, is it sort of access to venture capital? I don't think so. Maybe a little bit, but that's, you know, that's only true for some kinds of businesses, some kinds of innovation and so on. Um, not, not, for example, relevant to, to my company as an example. Um, is it, uh, uh, you know, what is the ethos of the U.S. that has made it successful? And then how does that translate into other countries? Look, I would say that, you know, one general thing to say is if you're going into a country kind of blind and you know nothing about it, you've never lived there and you're not, you know, that isn't your, you know, your whatever, your national background, cultural background, whatever, that seems very challenging to just sort of drop into a country and just start doing business there. Um, I, you know, I'm, undoubtedly people do it, but it seems very challenging to me. Um, you know, one sees all these different places around the world, even around the US, where there's sort of efforts to start companies. I, I would say that, you know, there was a period of time when people said, oh, the only place you can do a tech company is Silicon Valley. Um, I have to say that when I started our company, which was originally, I mean, our company is very geo-distributed at this point um, and has been for many years. But, uh, you know, our headquarters is in Champaign, Illinois, um, which people said, how can you start a tech company there? And I was like, it's a great place to start a tech company. There's a lot of, you know, talented people. It's a place where people can, you know, it's the cost of living is low. The um, uh, It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of good things going for it. Um, and uh, it turns out that seems to have been true. Um, but, you know, there were periods of time over the last 35 years when, when Silicon Valley went from being, it's the only place you can do a tech company to it's doomed 
to it's amazing. It's right now still in the it's amazing state again, and maybe it's big enough. Big, uh, you know, uh, maybe the the size of the amazingness is large enough that it will it will last. Um, at least insofar as places like, well, I was going to say Detroit, but that hasn't really lasted as, as the place for cars or Hollywood or something for movies, um, but, uh, or maybe New York for finance. Um, these things, you know, eventually they get to the point where they last for, for a solid century or, f- or, or few. Um, but um, I think that the, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I would say that, um, if you look around different parts of the world, uh, you know, there are often countries where there are kind of, um, uh, you know, people are saying, this is now the country. You know, I, I, I could go through the long list of, of, of places that um, where people have said, it's now everything's going to go to Berlin, London, Stockholm, uh, Paris, um, um, you know, at one time, maybe Japan, although that was a slightly different story and somewhat longer ago. Or, you know, uh, I don't see uh, that there are, you know, all sorts of different places. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so the answer is I, 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 I don't know. And I, I would say that um, if I was going to start a tech company, I think the uh, outside the U.S., I mean, for me, probably the only place I'd personally consider is the UK, because I think I know something about the UK. I mean, you know, could I consider doing it in, you know, I don't know, Singapore, Malta, you know, any of these places? You know, well, not really. You know, I've like visited them for a day or something, and I really don't know much about them. And it would be a, a huge kind of cultural learning curve to get to the point of being able to do business in these places. Now, you know, with respect to the UK, I haven't lived there in 40 something years. And, um, you know, it's always, for me, it's kind of a strange experience going there because so many things have changed and actually become typically more, more Americanized. So in a sense, it's easier for me to understand um, now uh, when, when I go back there. But, but again, you know, uh, it, it's, I mean, also we, we've had a company in the UK for, for what, 30 years now. So uh, sort of secondhand watching the operation of that um, I've uh, I, I maintain some knowledge of sort of how how companies work in the UK, um, but so not not perhaps a very helpful answer. But I think the place, you know, the, the world of blockchain is one where there's a lot of sort of innovation in the structure of companies and the ways to create companies. And I would say that there's a, a lot more diversity of places where people are building blockchain companies. You know, it, it's unlike. I don't know, hardware company, software company, whatever, where people say, you got to be in Silicon Valley, whatever. People are not saying that about blockchain companies. And I think it's a very interesting kind of set of developments. And you can kind of see the different places where uh, people have kind of tried to build these blockchain hubs. And I think it will be, those are probably the places that I would look at as a kind of the the sort of the future places where things may be, where it may be sort of, uh, attractive, where, where there may be sort of a, a, a certain, um, uh, the correct ethos, so to speak, to have, um, uh, to have companies be created. I mean, there, there's so many factors in, in companies. I mean, there's, you know, the accessibility, uh, you know, you can be totally geo-distributed, but if you're going to have a, a definite geo-place, there's sort of the, the local talent and, you know, what, what is the general uh, vibe of the local talent? Is it like... Um, uh, we're really interested in doing sort of 
uh, you know, and, and depending on what company you're starting, the vibe of the local talent may or may not be a fit. Um, and uh, uh, that, that's, you know, those are, those are other kinds of considerations. Um, somebody is asking, why don't I have an American accent after living in the US for so long? You know, I think when I go back to England, people say, you sound like an American. Um, I, you know, it's a good question. I moved to the US when I was 18 years old. Um, I moved when I went to graduate school in the US. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, at various times, my, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to sort of learn to imitate an American accent, and I'm pretty bad at that. My children always laugh at me when I try and do things like that. Um, I did, uh, there was a brief period back in the early 80s when I was, I, you know, had a little hobby of learning to fly small airplanes, and I discovered that air traffic controllers couldn't understand certain words said in British English. So I did learn to say at least those words with the with the correctly rolling R's and so on um, to to have them understandable in American. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's it's hard to know. I think people, um, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it's um, it's it's I know that to to. To the British, I sound American. To the Americans, I sound British. So, so it's some kind of mid-Atlantic story or something. Um, let's see. Zenth asks some um, on innovations. In fact, thinking in general, what analogies and mental models do I find most useful? You know, as I was saying before, just knowing about a bunch of different areas is super useful because. You know, there are always these analogies. You know, this is like that. This is, uh, and, and once you understand the that, you can get an idea about the this, so to speak. Uh, for me, ultimately, the, the sort of the, the hard core of a lot of the ways I think about things end up being computational language stories. To when I really want to actualize things, it's kind of like, well, what function would I write? What is the... Uh, you know, what is the symbolic structure that would represent this thing? That's how I get to the point where I'm like, this is real. I can actually see what to do. And of course, once I'm at that point, I get my computer to help me. And then I'm making all these, you know, generating all this output, being able to do all kinds of things Then I'm really off and running. I would say that's, that's one thing. I've realized recently that I, I perhaps have a certain degree of sort of philosophy-oriented thinking, as in, just sort of taking concepts and, and seeing their implications and so on in a way that is perhaps more uh, akin to the way that one might think about those things and in, in thinking about philosophy than any other field. And I think the combination of these two things has been, has been pretty powerful of, of sort of the philosophical thinking and the very pragmatic, uh, you know, I'm representing it in computational language and uh, having my computer help me. The, the combination of those things is, is pretty powerful. In terms of of um, sort of, I, I would say that the, you know, have I seen this general pattern of, of questions, ideas, whatever before, that's always the crucial thing. And, you know, how do you make the translation from something where, you know, I saw a thing like that in some, oh, I don't know, I saw it in some academic setting, and now I want to apply it in some technology business setting. I saw it in some kind of thing that happened in some very technical area, I can apply it over here. I saw it in, in um, uh, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I saw it in something about biomedicine, and now I want to apply it to software technology, these kinds of things. That's, uh, I suppose, what one has to be able to do to do that 
is one has to have kind of a meta model in one's mind. You know, if one's saying, well, what's the analogy between, you know, medical diagnosis and software debugging? You know, there's sort of a meta level of both those things, which are which is kind of the same. And then you have to say, well, you have to know about each of those things. And then you have to say, you know, how can you how can you knit those together and, and what mileage can you get by thinking of those things in the same kind of way? So I think that that I, actually I would say, okay, I, I have sort of a better answer to the question here, which is that for me, sort of drilling down to get to the essence of things is a lot of what I find interesting and what I've spent a lot of time trying to get decently skilled at. That is, you start from this big fluffy thing where people are telling you, you know, it's, let's see, there was something about even today, uh, maybe even a couple of times today, where, where it had that character, where it started off as a big fluffy thing and it seemed very complicated and it's like, well, what's the real point here? And it's like, can you drill down to the real point? If you can, you can sort of reduce the thing to its essence. What is the real question? What is the real idea? Uh, you know, the, the, once you've got it to that point, that's when you can really make these analogies and so on. Once you have the essence of what you're talking about, then you can see how does it relate to the essence of something else that I already know about. But drilling down and, and not kind of getting stuck on what, you know, all this big fluffy complexity of, you know, oh, there's this complicated situation and it involves this and, and that and the, all these different issues and, and whatever. It's like, what's the real point here? Um, and, and, and that's the thing that you can, that, that becomes a transportable idea, something which you can kind of make analogies to other things about. When it's the big complicated fluffy thing, it's like, it's one of a kind. Um, you have to kind of break it down to understand the essence of it to be able to to make those analogies. Um, okay, D zero is asking: Do I think a four day work week is a good idea? Feels like it's de facto becoming so post pandemic. I don't know. I operate personally for myself. I'm a definitely a seven day work week kind of person, um, but that's probably because, in a sense, I do for quotes work things that I like to do. So it's like, well, I could take the day off and then, well, what would I do? Well, I would do what I do as work. So it's, um, uh, so I'm back in the same place. Um, you know, I don't think, um, I think people have, uh, you know, by the time you really want that four day work week, there's a question of what are you doing for work? And, or maybe there's a thing you're doing where, you know, it's kind of you do the thing for work and you have this other hobby that is also quite serious and which is kind of pseudo work, except that it doesn't happen to be something you can make a living from or whatever else. I guess that's a model. But for me, it's kind of like, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I have to say, I haven't particularly seen a tendency towards uh, people doing, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's a four day work week with people going into an office. Um, I'm, I have to say, having been a remote CEO for 31 years now, um, I'm a little blind to the whole question of, of sort of uh, in office, not in office and so on. I, you know, we have uh, some lovely offices around the world, um, some of which are populated and some of which are not so populated, which is a disappointment in terms of the loveliness of the offices and the rent one pays on, on them. But um, uh, I, because I haven't been to any of them in two years, um, it's, uh, I'm a little bit blind to how much they're really sort of uh, in use every day. I, you know, many years ago, I had this telepresence robot that I tried using a few times to wander around our offices in Illinois, but it was a disaster. 
um, it was uh, it was not a useful thing to do. Um, but but so if if by you know in office four days a week, I, I I simply don't really know. I have the impression that you know it's it's one of these things where some people, you know, we've seen this with our very geo distributed company over the course of many years. There are people who work absolutely great on their own hanging out wherever they're hanging out. And, you know, maybe they go to a cafe, maybe they do this, where they go, you know, they're in a different time zone, they're in whatever, and they are sufficiently uh, self-motivated and motivated by the work they're doing. They do great. There are other people who just find it very hard. They don't have a good, you know, good work habits. They don't have, their motivation comes a lot from being around other people, and they can't operate in that kind of setting. And I think what we're seeing, and, and, and also I would say there are people, you know, usually like in our company, there are all sorts of groups with managers and so on. And some managers, the people they hire and the way they manage is very oriented towards be there in person. And there are other managers where it's much more, that's just geodistributed. It doesn't really matter where people are. Um, I have to say during this pandemic, some people who thought they were in-person managers have realized that actually they can manage uh, at a distance too. And that's been sort of an interesting thing to see. But I think it's, it's something where, depending on the nature of the work, the nature of the manager, the nature of the relationship with the rest of the team and so on, there are cases where it's like, it's really important for people to actually go into an office either all the time or occasionally versus not much at all. I, I think that for us, most of our, well, there's some teams which are very much in person, sometimes because they have to be, because they're, they're doing things which actually require physical presence somewhere. Um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, it tends to be the case that most of our teams are, are sort of uh, geo-distributed first, as in, it's kind of like you're, you're just using, you know, web conferencing, you're not, um, uh, you're not, um, uh, everybody's doing that, even if they're sitting in offices, you know, in the same building, so to speak. Um, let's see, a couple of other things maybe I can try and do. Um, let's see, Mikhail asks, how to approach my boss so he makes the decision that I believe is good for the company? Is it good to insist or is it better to do it softly? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, um, you know, it depends a lot on you and it depends a lot on your boss. I mean, I know that that people at our company over the course of years who've made really good suggestions, which have gotten to me in various forms, and they've made really bad suggestions sometimes, and they've been presented too softly, too loudly, uh, and it very much depends on... Okay, so I got a couple of things to say about that. I would say, you know, there's a way people can explain things to me, for example, where I actually understand. And there's a way people will just say, this is how it should be. And trust me, I'm right about it. For me in particular, the second approach is really bad. I mean, I expect to understand things. I mean, I kind of, one of my life principles is, you know, don't follow, you know, don't follow that direction unless you understand it. Don't don't go for anything where people just say, I'm an expert, I know what I'm talking about, just trust me, so to speak. Uh, you know, I have the perhaps arrogant point of view that I can, in principle, if I put the effort in, I can understand almost anything, and, and, I, and I will. If I'm going to make an important decision, I will try and actually understand what's going on. And sometimes I say, 
I don't really need to understand that. You know, I, I believe you. It's all good. You know, it's, it's not worth the effort that it would take me to understand that, to dive all the way into that thing. And I trust the person enough to just say, well, what you say is probably, probably you know, is I'm fine with that. Um, I would say that if you present something as, uh, you know, it can go both ways. So, so people can present things where they can say, and here are all the reasons, reason one, reason two, reason three, reason four. And I'm like, what are you actually asking for? What's the actual point? And, you know, it's like, get to the point, you know, and sometimes they'll get to the point and they'll be like, well, okay, I agree with you. You don't need to have given me all those reasons because I can already, you know, I can already see that I agree with you. And so I would say that, um, uh, you know, it, it, the question of the exposition of, of a new idea is, is always challenging. It depends quite a bit on who you're presenting it to, what they already know, what their ways of thinking about things are. Um, I would say that there are definitely times, there are plenty of times when people have suggested good ideas to me, I ignored them, they were right in the end. Now, what went wrong? Maybe sometimes I was too pig-headed, sometimes I was just didn't have the right context to appreciate the idea. Sometimes the idea wasn't at the right time. Sometimes it was a good idea, but it was 10 years too early. Sometimes it was, uh, uh, and, and sometimes the, um, uh, I mean, in some cases, sometimes it's complicated because often the messenger, okay, there are different cases. One case that always drives me a little bit crazy is the messenger who comes and says, I have this idea, you should do this. And I'm like, I have got more ideas than you can possibly imagine. I do not need another idea. That is not what, you know. Now, if, if you, the messenger, are saying, here's an idea, and I, the messenger, want to be involved in doing it, that's a much more interesting package, so to speak. Um, because, you know, just pouring in raw ideas is, is usually not, uh, you know, is, is, is often very unhelpful. And, and, you know, it tends to be the case. You know, I see I, I advise a whole bunch of companies and in addition to all the stuff at our own company. Um, it's, uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm always aware of the fact that you can pour in an idea, but it's very hard to know. I mean, it's kind of the, the there's often kind of the, the sort of the essence of CEO counseling, so to speak, is to understand the, the sort of the almost psychological messages from the CEO to the point where you can sort of deduce the implicit consequences of an idea without having to know all the plumbing of, oh, this company has these divisions and this thing and that thing. And so this idea would live between these divisions and not work out and so on. You can kind of get all of that in a filtered way from sort of almost the psychological signals from the CEO as you kind of talk about the idea. But you know, it's, it's often the case that people from the outside will say, you should do this. It's obvious you should do that. And it's often, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of hidden state often, which makes the ideas really, you know, they seem like good ideas on the face of it from the outside. But if you were embedded in the thing, it would be a, um, you would realize that it actually wasn't such a good idea. Or maybe it actually is a good idea and you're too embedded in the thing to see that it's a good idea. You know, one of the exercises that I like to try to do for myself is, you know, as I say, for well, 
I both before I started my current company, between my first company and my current company, my hobby, I was mostly an academic, but my hobby was doing strategy consulting for tech companies. This was in the 80s. Um, and that was a very, uh, uh, for me, a very educational activity. Um, but, uh, and, and then I, again, in the last few years, I, I've started um, doing some stuff with, with other companies in addition to my own. For many years, I was like, I'm only gonna do stuff with my own company. Um, but, you know, it's um, uh, sometimes it'll be like I've, I've got some obvious advice for such and such a company. And my exercise for myself is if I were looking at my own company from the outside, what's the obvious advice I would give? And and then sometimes it's like it's obvious what the obvious advice would be. Now I think, oh, my gosh, I can't implement that. You know, there's this problem and that problem and that problem. And I kind of it's a good exercise for me to think about if I was on the other side of this and I was, you know, providing advice to me, so to speak, I would say, well, you know, you can get over that objection this way. You can get over that one this way. But sometimes it's like, uh, you know, in, in the end, it's, it's, it's much harder to get there. You know, something that might seem like, oh, it's obvious you should do this. It's like, well, actually, no, it's not because the character of the company that one has built is not as such that, Yes, you could take it in that direction, but it would destroy much of the personality it has, or it would be totally inappropriate, and, and the people within the company wouldn't really, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't eagerly go in that direction, or the customers wouldn't go in that direction, or whatever else. And that's stuff you tend to only know from the inside. So I think it's a, I would say, in terms of the convince the boss of a, of, of a good thing to do, it's understand the boss, understand the thing understand how you present the sort of how you explain it. And I think it's, it's uh, uh, you know, in the question of whether you should be loud or soft about it, I think it is deeply dependent on, on the personalities involved, the nature of the idea, whether you're just saying, here's a raw idea, or whether you're saying, and I want to implement this idea, um, and so on. And, and it's uh, sometimes, you know, people will come to me and say, this is a, you know, I really should do this. And I'll say, look, it's a good idea, but you can't do it within our company. It's just, we don't have, that's not a mechanism that we have. You know, you need to go off and start your own company to do that. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, th th there are many different possible things that, that can happen there. Um, all right, let's see a, few, a couple more questions. Um, there's a question here about what, how does one learn about business administration? What are useful learning resources from Smishy? Um, I have mostly learned by doing. I have to say when I first started my first company in 1981, um, I was an academic at that time, a young academic. And I thought I didn't know anything about business and I thought I should go read some books and things. And I was like, these books at the time were like, to me kind of, felt very sophomoric and absurd. And I kind of gave up very quickly. Um, and uh, uh, for me, most of what, you know, what I've learned about doing business has always, it's always seemed kind of like common sense. And then I've learned by doing, and I've built up a large base of experience. I mean, people try to simulate that experience by going through case studies and things like this. Um, I think that's probably useful. Um, I think that sometimes those case studies get very much, you know, the moral of the story is already told at the beginning, which I think is a mistake. I mean, I think the reality of what happened and thinking it through for oneself is probably very valuable. Um, I think that uh, 
saying, and the moral is, you know, collaboration is good or something like that, is I think it's it's crushing what would otherwise be something that you can, you know, in other words, having the actual experience of running a business or whatever else is super valuable. Can you simulate that by by knowing about what's happened with other people running businesses or what's happened? You know, if you think about what would, you know, there are all kinds of good exercises. Like you look at companies out there in the market and you say, what would I do if I was CEOing that company? Um, you know, what would be the move I would make to deal with this issue? Um, and that's always a, you know, it, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting and useful exercise. I would say that there are, you know, the aspects of sort of the mechanics of running companies of, you know, how does HR work? How does, you know, how do contracts work? How does accounting work? Those kinds of things. Um, it's, uh, I, I'm sure there are ways to learn that. I, 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 I don't know. I, I've I probably, I, you know, there are probably plenty that I don't know. I mean, you know, if you if you talk, let's say, about accounting, you know, over the years, I've learned a decent amount about that. If you threw me, you know, for example, the the accounting data for our non-U.S. companies, I can't really read that stuff easily. Um, you know, I've learned to read U.S. accounting, you know, information, uh, you know, and I, and I have to read everything else by translation, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, how did I get to the point where, you know, if I tried to learn sort of accounting stuff in the abstract, I'm not sure I would have had a good time learning that. But as soon as you actually have a business that you're involved with, um, it becomes, you know, much easier to understand, you know, what does the cash flow analysis mean type thing, at least for me. Um, So, I I mean, I I would encourage sort of, uh, you know, if you can't, if you're not actually doing, having your own business, at least somehow get involved in, Paying attention to somebody else's business and and getting to you know to know the business well enough that you're kind of seeing a bunch of the internal information and so on. And I think that's a that might be a, a reasonable way to to get into these things. I I have to say that I I'm not a big enthusiast of the kind of you know go to MBA school and uh, get your business degree and and then you'll be fully qualified to do business. Um, I you know I don't think it's kind of like it's not like being a doctor or something. Um, it's uh, and I have to say the terrible fact that I have to will have to relate that in the in the three decades of our company, I, I don't believe anybody with an MBA has ever been a success at our company. And it's a terrible thing to say. We've had, you know, people who who, um, uh, the, you know, it, it, there's something about MBAism and a sort of innovation oriented company like ours that doesn't seem to mix very well. And I think part of the point is that a, a large sort of a piece of the kind of how can you sort of walk the walk, talk the talk to do business in the way that business is normally done, there tends to be a, you know, a lot of kind of uh, MBA school, I think, is, is sort of how do you fit into a cog in a machine that's running in a certain way? Well, the machine that we have doesn't happen to run the way that other people's machines run, uh, at least in, in certain ways, um, and uh, probably has a, has. Uh, a bunch more kind of individual thinking than is probably common. Um, but uh, I think, um, or, or maybe it just has a crazy leader, I don't know. But um, uh, it, it, um, I think the, um, the thing that I notice is that, you know, the sort of the failure mechanism tends to be in an organization like ours tends to be that, you know, it's like the talk is good and the jargon is there. But it's like, and now you actually have to think 
and figure this out for yourself. There isn't just a formula, an answer in the back of the book. It's like, we have a situation. This situation is one we've never seen before. Maybe nobody has ever seen it before. And you have to actually think about it and figure out the answer. And there isn't a formulaic answer. And if you try and feed, fit a formulaic answer, you will do something which, at least in our company culture, is unlikely to work. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it, but, but in the company culture, for example, a large, very large company, it might very well be that it is better to fit into the, the cogs that people expect than it is to think for oneself and try and invent a new way to do it. I mean, inventing new ways to do things if you already have a big machine that's running with lots of cogs, it's a very expensive thing to invent a new, differently shaped cog. So, you know, that's something that um, in uh, uh, it's something that, you know, in, in a company like ours is 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 because of the fact that we are sort of a high innovation oriented company. And we also have kind of a company culture that's about thinking about things and figuring stuff out perhaps from scratch, you know, perhaps in some cases we invent too much for ourselves. Although I have to say that I keep on seeing evidence that that we sort of went with the flow and did, did what other people do on something. And actually that was a mistake. And we should have kind of thought it through and invented it for ourselves, for ourselves. But, but so that tends to be a little different from what the, the kind of what you get from the kind of MBA type, type thing. And, and so I, I, that, that, I mean, you know, th there are other mechanisms. I mean, sort of the, the, the incubators are kind of the new MBA school, and they're still very much an evolving kind of story, but also very much like, well, uh, you know, you kind of got to have your own company idea that you're doing something with, although those incubators provide, in the end, I think, pretty good mixing grounds for even if your first idea didn't work out, you're still hanging out in a place where there are 50 other little proto companies that are doing things and you will find another proto company that you can help that you can, uh, you know, you can eventually join or whatever, and, and that can work well. Um, okay. One or two more. And then I should, should go along here. Uh, Ozhan asks, have you re ever regretted leaving the Academy? Uh, I think the answer would be no. I mean, I was, I was a, I think I was a rather successful academic and um, in the sense that, you know, I, I, you know, got good position and, and good uh, uh, reputation and so on and was doing, I, I think I'd like to say good work. Um, but for me, it was, I was, I am much too oriented towards like, I just want to achieve an objective, get things done. I don't think I have the, I mean, academia is, is a very collective enterprise in many ways. I mean, even though the individual professors are like doing their thing, the whole ethos of, of it, I think, I mean, and again, I haven't been in it now for the 35 years, so I can't speak totally from, from current experience. But to me, it's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a collective thing. You've got a lot of kind of um, partners and a whole structure around you. And there's a whole set of expectations from the whole sort of academic system, from you know all the the academic journals and the funding agencies and the colleagues and the this and the that and the other, and it's not a great fit for somebody like me who's mostly interested in figuring out things out for themselves and getting stuff done. And I you know I could see that very directly 
in like, well, I just think we should do this. And people say, oh, you can't do that. You know, there's 17 committees it has to go through. And it's like, you know, why are we wasting time on this? This is obviously the right answer. Let's just do it. And uh, so, you know, that's something for which being uh, in, you know, having a, a business is a, is a much more effective way to be able to exercise those kinds of ideas. I, I would say that when I was in academia, I was not particularly enthusiastic about teaching. And as I have gotten older, I have become much more interested in that. Um, and, you know, we run for the last 20 years, we've run a, an annual summer school. We also now have for the last 10 years, we've had a high school summer camp. We just added a middle school camp. Um, and I personally, every week, I, I spend a few hours um, uh, working with some high school kids and some middle school kids. Um, my own children are, are um, uh, um, they've ascended past, past the stage where, where um, those kinds of, you know, they're, 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 they're launched, so to speak. So it's, um, and I find it, I find it really interesting interacting with young folk. Um, and uh, I find um, kind of the, uh, uh, I find even that um, uh, sort of my efforts to explain things help me understand things much better. Uh, I find it very uh, interesting and encouraging the sort of different perspectives and the freshness of perspectives on things that young folk tend to have. I mean, I, I see, I, I think I realized I do a certain amount of mentoring of people and I, I've wound up with sort of two main populations. One is CEOs, the other is kids. And I've kind of notice that the thing that's in common between those two groups is they're both uh, groups, they're both types of people where they believe anything is possible. You know, the tech CEO, the teenager, they're both people where there's sort of, the, you know, the, uh, all sorts of things are possible, whereas there are many other people for whom that isn't the case. And, and I find those, uh, I find it um, uh, sort of interesting and encouraging to interact with people where it's kind of the, the uh, they're in the anything is possible phase. So, you know, a thing in academia that in a sense, uh, I think uh, at the time when I was an academic, I really was not into teaching particularly. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, it's, it's kind of funny. My, uh, uh, you know, I think the last class I taught um, was um, uh, the, somebody a few years ago found the student evaluations from the last class I, I taught. And I think they were, they were arguably a, this person shouldn't be a professor in some ways. I mean, I, I was teaching a class um, about physics for non-scientists, which I thought would be interesting because it's kind of like, um, as you can perhaps tell from my live streaming activities, I, I kind of like explaining stuff and, and so on. And I thought that was, would be a good uh, exercise and I also had this kind of idea that, you know, my test of success is if I have 70 students in the class, how many can I sort of uh, uh, convince that, you know, physics or STEMI kinds of things are, are interesting and so on. Um, I would say that uh, I really had not appreciated what kind of the actual sort of uh, American college experience and, and kind of the, you can't ask a question in a, in a in homework that you haven't covered in the class and things, I hadn't really understood those kinds of dynamics, and so that was uh, that was kind of um, kind of bad. But um, I think, um, and I would say that the things um, uh, in terms of uh, well, the, the so 
you know, in terms of academia and so sort of the educational component of academia, um, I would say I have become more interested in that, although I have found other ways to sort of do educational things, not through academia, and I've no idea whether, whether it would be better or worse through academia, probably worse, it's probably more structured and I wouldn't like it. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, I think that's the um, thing. I, you know, it's funny for me because particularly coming back to doing physics after a solid, well, 40 years away, um, it's kind of odd because I have all these friends who are, uh, you know, my contemporaries or whatever, usually a bit older than me because I happen to go through the system pretty young, um, who sort of have been just being academics for the last 40 years. And it's kind of interesting to me to see, you know, I realize that's exactly the path I would have been on. I mean, I, I would have been, if, if, if nothing else had intervened, I would have been a physics professor. And, um, you know, I would have continued doing that. And it's interesting to me to compare the actual life I've led with what I would have done if I'd been a, you know, decently successful physics professor. Um, and uh, for me, the things I've actually done are much better. But it wouldn't be true for everybody at all. It would be there are, uh, you know, for me, I kind of, I'm, I like kind of figuring out what to do for myself. There are, uh, it's, it's some, um, and, you know, sort of building things that one didn't expect were buildable and all those kinds of things. And it's a, it's a very different, uh, it's very different life from being an academic. And, you know, it's one that's been better for me. Um, all right, I should, uh, I think there's some questions here maybe to leave for another time. Um, interesting questions. Um, let's see, maybe just one more if I can find something. Um, let's see, the, the Universe Within asks, how far out do you prepare your day-to-day -day work? I'm starting to get the hang of studying routines, but not organization of what there is to do and so on. Uh, you know, I'm totally spoiled in that respect because I'm running a decent sized company which is full of project managers and things like that. So a lot of my projects get pretty structured outside of me, so to speak. And it's like, yeah, there's gonna be a bi-weekly meeting of this, you know, review this project and that happens independent, it should happen independent of we, me remembering that there should be a bi-weekly meeting to review this or that project. As far as what I do for myself, I tend to, I, I tend at some level to have usually one intense project going at any given time. And, you know, my life gets kind of all gummed up if the intense project lasts too long. Like, for example, I've been working on this mathematics project for, how long is it? Maybe, you two and a half, three months, something like that. And that's kind of gummed up some of my usual routines. You know, it's caused some of my email to get backed up. It's caused various things I normally do to not happen. But I tend to, my best way to work for myself is when I have some project that gets to a certain intense phase. Sometimes there's a, a precursor phase when I'm getting all the pieces lined up so that it's possible to do that project intensely. But then when I actually get into doing it intensely, I typically really want to like focus on that, you know, spend typically every evening, for example, uh, you know, doing that project um, and do it uh, with intensity until it's finished, so to speak. Um, and so I'm, I'm usually not in the 
heavy multitasking between different things, except there are a lot of things which are kind of progressing, but with a structure that is not of my own making, so to speak. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I have a habit of, I, I'm very low tech, actually, on one thing. I, I like to be high tech on many things, but I, I tend to write the things that I want to do on pieces of paper. And I, I've, you know, I've, I've tried electronic versions of this for years, but there's a certain satisfaction that I get out of, out of just writing, you know, a bunch of items on a piece of paper with the expectation that within a week or two, the items on that piece of paper will have been done. And I kind of have almost a ritual of copying over the ones that haven't been done onto a new piece of paper. And I have a whole code of, you know, when the thing has been done, I, I you know, go through it with a, 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 a sort of a, a wavy line. And, and there are, I have this kind of way of, of doing sort of, it's been partially done or it's been passed to somebody else. I have kind of a way of doing a half line through it and so on. And I've, I've sort of developed these uh, almost ritualistic uh, approaches to this, but I find it, uh, you know, despite having, um, uh, you know, trying all sorts of electronic versions of this, I, I find there's a certain satisfaction, a certain in-your-faceness of just having, you know, a few, uh, you know, a pad of paper here or there, which has things written on it that are what you intended to do, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I think, okay, so one of the issues with getting things done uh, in my life, at least, is procrastination. It's like, you know, when do you actually sit down and do it? Now, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I claim that I have a certain degree of rational procrastination. So, for example, there's some things where the, it just things aren't lined up enough to be able to really do it. If I try and do it now, it's like it's going to be a mess because it's not really things aren't really ready. I have to wait until things are ready or something like I'm preparing for some particular thing and the thing is going to happen on day X. And it's like, well, I could prepare a week in advance, but if I did that, I, you know, many things might have happened in that week, and I might also have forgotten what I prepared by the time I'm actually coming to do it. So there's a certain degree of just do it at the end. The same thing uh, often with things like messaging, marketing, and so on for, for products and projects and so on. It's quite often, you know, you usually think about those things at the beginning, like what would I say about this project if it comes out the way I think it's going to come out? And then I don't think too much about that in the, inter, in the in intervening stages. And then close to the end, when you really know what the thing you have is, then you kind of have to, that's the time, you know, procrastinate until that point, because then you really know what it is. You kind of made all kinds of intermediate messages based on, well, it's almost this, and I think it's going to be that, but just wait until you know what it is, so to speak. And then, uh, and then you have the right message. I think the other thing that can happen is that I can be, uh, you know, I, I can be in the right mood to do something and not in the right mood to do something. And I can be very much uh, sort of uh, uh, excited about, oh, I'm going to write about this or that thing. And I just start writing and the words come pouring out. Or I can be like, well, I'm supposed to write this, but uh, no words come to my mind. And, you know, I've noticed that there's, it's just a question of oh, details of kind of the mood I'm in or whatever. I'm not a very moody person, but it's, it's more the, the, a question of the, um, uh, I suppose it's, it's some kind of, well, for example, for example, if I have a series of meetings which are mostly talking, mostly just like, you know, they're reviewing this and giving comments on that and suggesting things to this and, and trying to push things forward in this way, 
And then I have a meeting that is about, okay, now sit down and write this document. That transition is difficult for me. It takes me, I, I really, it's better if, oh, I come back and do that after dinner or something, because then I'll be in sort of a different state and I'll be much more uh, ready to, you know, have the different kind of rhythm of being, okay, now I'm going to sit down and write something as opposed to being in this action, 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 just, you know, uh, you know responding to things kind of mode. So I, I think that, um, that there tends to be this kind of, um, uh, you know, are you in the right state? And, and sometimes, you know, I've found there are, there are some, I've tried to find better tricks for getting sort of in the right zone to do things. Like, for example, one, one trick I can tell you that doesn't work, at least for me, absolute disaster, is if you're writing something and you're like, you are writing and you're like three quarters of the way through some section of, of something you're writing. You say, I'm going to stop here because I know I'm really on a roll. That's the worst time to stop. Stop when you have a full stopping point. And I, I tend to do something which is, you know, I tend to be, I'll write some whole section of something. And I'll be in such a role that I'll write the beginning of the next section, but then I'll be like, I'm too tired or I ran out of time or whatever else. Let me come back to it. That's actually a negative. It would actually be better if I had written nothing for the next section, because then it's much more to me, I'm much more encouraged. Oh, I'm gonna start this new thing. I'm excited. I'm gonna sit down and start writing rather than let me figure out what I was thinking before and let me graft some new words onto these other ones that were there. Um, I, I don't find the same thing actually with, with writing code. Um, with writing code, sometimes there's a certain, I don't remember what on earth this did, Although I like to think that with uh, I write decent code and it's in Waltham language, which is easy to understand and easy to sort of pick apart and, and see how things work. But still, that's a case where for different reasons, it's often good to try to you know, finish it in one go if you can. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, not sure if I was, I'm now even forgotten what the um, precise, question was, but, um, uh, oh, this was about how long in advance to prepare what one's doing. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I, I tend to sort of feed in a series of, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to have this meeting, I want to have that meeting. And then they, you know, there tends to be, for me, at least there tends to be a structure of, well, when will things fit in? And that tends to be, I don't know, week, two weeks-ish time frame, not much longer than that. And, you know, people ask me, oh, will you do this event in, you know, two years? And it's like, I don't have a clue. I have no idea what I'll be doing then. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's much easier if it's, if it's shorter term. All right. With that said, I am late for some other uh, meeting. And, um, well, thanks for, for joining me. And um, I will be, I think, doing this again on this topic in a couple of weeks. And on Friday, I have my science and technology Q&A for kids and others uh, as part of my interest in education that I already mentioned. Okay, thanks and bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.